This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. When there's blood in the streets, uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many try, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Tim Johnson, thanks very much for making your, your master of the market debut. Uh, really excited to get to sit down and have a chat to you and feel like there's a, a huge amount of, of ground to cover. And I know you're really busy, so thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I thought before we get into Apollo Capital, I thought. You know, the fact that you've come from a traditional funds management um, you know, business universe was, was an important place to start. Maybe if you can tell us what you're doing before Apollo and um, yeah, how you were finding life in the, in the more traditional world of, of funds management. Yeah, uh, so my, my background's in, in funds management and superannuation. Uh, before that, I, uh, the, the longer story is I actually uh, did commerce law at uni uh, and then spent about three years uh, trying to become a professional golfer. Um, so just played full time, um, tried to yeah, apply myself as best I could, um, but at the, at the ripe old age of 26, realized I wasn't going to make a living from it. And I guess the reason I mentioned that is because I've, I've always in, been interested in doing things a little bit differently. Um, but at, at the end of the, the, uh, the golf career, if I can call it that, uh, decided that it was time to get a real job. Um, so worked in, in uh, an Aussie equities fund manager, boutique uh, fund manager in, in Melbourne, uh, and then a, a giant industry super fund. Um, and so they, they were great. They were learning curves, um, you know, great way to learn funds management, learn about how to you know, investing, uh, did my CFA course. Um, but I quickly realized that investing in BHP and CBA and Westpac didn't really float my boat. Um, I think they're important jobs for the, you know, the, the macro end of the, the mega caps. But for, for me, it didn't really feel like I was making much of a difference or, you know, other than sort of changing stock prices. So um, I, I sort of had a, uh, a change and, and, and got into startups and then really fell into crypto um, in, um, in 2017. And I guess uh, throughout the experience in the traditional uh, financial industry, um, I was you know, always sort of drawn to the idea of alternatives and, and crypto where I've eventually landed uh, is, is I like to call the alternative alternatives because <laughs> it is uh, it's certainly very different. And so can you remember that first exposure you had to, to the crypto world? What was it and, and how did you feel about it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it, I think it was 2015, I attended a meetup and I, I walked into the meetup and I didn't really know much about Bitcoin, didn't know anything about it. And I ended up walking out. And the reason why is because um, we find that in, Bitcoin's kind of got this libertarian, almost anarchist kind of roots. Uh, and I didn't really identify with that. And this meetup was espousing this whole down with governments, they're corrupt, you know, Bitcoin's going to liberate the people. And I, I, yeah, I'm not a very political person and I didn't really get into that. And so I actually walked out and it's probably a very costly financial decision if I, <laughs> if I reflect on it. If I had a bought back then, uh, uh, you know, it would have been better than when I eventually bought. What was the price back then? What was it in 2015? Uh, oh, 2015, I think you're anywhere between, yeah, $100, yeah, sort of lower. Um, Wowza. And, you know, today it's trading at yeah, 44000 So. Um, but then I, I came back into the space at the start of 2017, started working with the, the chairman of Apollo Capital. Um, he had a, a small a small family office. Uh, and one of his main investments is now called Bankster, which is listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, and my role was working with him in the family office, but also working alongside this, this business. And I thought, what's this crypto nonsense again? Like, what, what is it? It just doesn't make sense to me. 
I couldn't get what Bitcoin was. And I started with them in January 2017. And by October 2017, I'm, I'm a bit slow, Chris, sometimes. Um, I've, I thought I've just got to buy some. I've, I, I'm actually going to learn about this. If I put some money into the market, I'll, I'll pay more attention. I'll learn more about it. Uh, and that proved to be a, a good financial decision, um, getting in at much lower than it is today. Um, but I think one thing I've noticed you know, running Apollo Capital, you know, the crypto fund, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, is people are very sceptical towards crypto. And, um, and, and that's fine. And, and, but I, but I, think, I think there's a closed-mindedness there where uh, myself, if I reflect on my sort of introduction to, to, to crypto, I, I just sort of didn't want to know about it. I sort of knew enough to think that this is just not something I'm interested in. I'm not going to pay much attention because it's just not relevant. And um, why do you think that is? Do you think it's also because it challenges your previous worldview and the fact that the knowledge you already had might not have been quite as valuable as how you felt it already was? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think the simplest reason is people are busy and uh, it's just easier to dismiss it. Yeah. Just cognitive, cognitively, if I've got to spend hours and hours learning about this, or if I can just go dismiss that because someone else told me that there's a bad perception of it, it's just easier to do that and I save myself hours and hours of work. Um, I, think, I think there's that. I think the other element is that it's just, it is a complex area. Uh, if, if we think about crypto assets, they draw upon a, a, a variety of disciplines, uh, maths, you know, cryptography, uh, finance, investing, computer science, general technology, and it's kind of this mishmash of all these different disciplines that, that comes into one. And so it can be hard to, to, to get your head around. And as I said before, I started in the space really January 2017, but didn't buy until 10 months later. Um, so I think there's a couple of reasons, but, but mostly it's just easier to dismiss it. And it's got this bad perception, so I'm just not going to worry about it. But I, I sort of reflect on other interactions I've had with technology. Like you know, what was your first response when you heard about Airbnb, staying in someone else's house? Um, I remember back in, in the late 90s, um, you know, I was a teenager, but I distinctly remember having this thought of, oh, you, you can't buy on the internet because credit cards aren't safe. And obviously, you know, you, you're doing that daily now. And so I think it's interesting to sort of reflect and go, well, when you hear about new technologies or when you hear about new investment opportunities, is it just easy to dismiss it or is it easy to sort of keep an open mind and think, oh, okay, there might actually be something here. And buying your first Bitcoin in 2017, it's a pretty steep learning curve to starting your own crypto fund. What was that transition like in a, a really short period of time? And, and how did you manage to get the conviction to actually take the plunge to, to starting up your own fund in such a short, relatively short space of time? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I, I think there's a, a few parts to that. One is um, uh, in 2017, that was the first really well-known bull run in crypto. Uh, Bitcoin, I think, started at about thousand dollars a coin at the start of the year by december it was twenty thousand dollars coin uh, i think ethereum started at six dollars and ended up at over a thousand dollars per eth and and so uh it was a big bull run that business bank so which we, we spoke about um that really took off and as a group with the chairman and and uh, a few other people we thought well, what else can we do in the space and and i reflected on my background in funds management superannuation traditional finance and also, the fact that the space was no longer just about Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, there's Ethereum. There was probably another 2,000 assets at the time. There's now you know, another 10,000 assets. Uh, and, and really, to get a diversified portfolio, it's quite difficult to do that in a DIY sense. Uh, but uh, to have a fund that could manage that for you kind of made sense. Um, so a, a fund made sense. We started that uh, and that launched in, in February 2018, which was in hindsight the uh, <laughs> pretty much the exact wrong time to launch a fund. 
Um, but yeah, look, I, I think I've I've always had the opportunity. I've always had the, uh, the, the the sort of view that, as opposed to sort of the, the libertarians and the, the anarchists that are very you know, evangelistic, very almost religious about the space, I've always just thought, you know, what there's something here. It, let's make it easy for people to get exposure to it, and, and a fund makes sense. And so you mentioned starting. Um you know, crypto fund just post an incredible bull run. And I think you were down about 60% from Feb 18 to Feb 19. How did that test out your conviction? And were there times during that, you know, really challenging start where you thought, oh, I've, I've, I've picked the wrong horse here? Yeah, I, I think there's two, two elements to that question. So I think the first is you know, my, my personal conviction in terms of uh, investing in the space. Uh, that wasn't challenged. Uh, I mean, crypto is volatile. Um, and you have to accept that volatility. If, you, if, you, if that volatility scares you, you shouldn't be investing in the space, full stop. Um, so if you're not prepared for, albeit a 60% drawdown, which is quite severe, um, you, you, I, I don't think you should have been in the space in the first, uh, in the, in the first instance. How did your um, investors react during that period? Yeah, so I was going to touch on this. So one thing I'm really proud of is that between February 2018 and 30 June 2020, so two and, almost two and a half years, we didn't have any redemptions. No way. No, not one redemption. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we didn't have you know, a huge amount of investors at that stage. We probably had anywhere between you know, 10 to, to 50 and, and building up. Um, but what it tells me is that people are getting in for the right reasons. And so uh, they're taking a long-term time frame. We, we recommend a minimum three years and, and really, uh, you know, it, it potentially could be longer. Um, but we didn't have that one redemption. And, uh, and it told me that people were getting in for the right reasons. There was one, one phone call I remember um, distinctly. as a guy, I thought he was in Sydney and, is investor and, and this was in the day where I spoke to everyone that was you know, potentially investing sort of any amount of money. Um, and uh, I thought he was in Sydney, he was actually in Tasmania. And he said, Tim, don't, don't call me. I, I don't want to know about you in, for, for, for 10 years. Just, you know, I've got, I invested $80,000 in the fund, um, which has now done very, very well. And he said, I'm, I'm just happy to have the exposure and, and, and we'll see what it's worth uh, later on. Now, yeah, uh, not all investors should be like that. I think maybe they should have a little bit more interest or uh, appreciation of what's going on time to time. But equally, uh, you know, the opposite of uh, you know being too involved in the space and you know watching price prices daily can kind of uh, lead to or, or that short termism um, can lead to you know bad decisions. And so, did you feel you you really articulated to your investors before they put in money what the journey was going to be like? Because that, that seems to be something. You must have done pretty well. They must have known they were getting in for a really volatile ride. Was that something you were at pains to really explain to them before they, they committed capital to you back then? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we certainly did. Um, and, and I guess one thing that we have stressed a lot is uh, it comes down to position sizing. So if you invest 50% of your portfolio on crypto, that's going to scare the living chocolates out of you and <laughs> any investor because of the volatility. But if you have a 1% allocation or a 2% allocation or a 5% allocation, that volatility, if you look at it in isolation, is still going to be pretty scary. But if you look at it in terms of the rest of the portfolio, and given that crypto tends not to be correlated to other assets, uh, that volatility is actually really doesn't make much of a difference to the overall portfolio. So that was something we stressed a lot. Uh, and then also that long-term time frame. Um, and I, yeah, I, I guess they've, you know, they've, they've heeded those messages and, um, and we, we still, I think the redemption that we had in June 2020 uh, has been the only redemption that we've had. And that, um, yeah, I think that's such an important point. There are some people who are all in on crypto and it's, they almost view their whole wealth through a, a crypto lens and they want to get paid in crypto and, and move off the grid in terms of the banking grid, if you like. But there's plenty of people 
who view it not dissimilar to how they view their insurance on their house, where they pay, you know, half percent to insure their house. And if events go a certain way, that half percent has an astronomical effect on on their, their wealth. It's an asymmetric return. And crypto plays almost an insurance part of, of some people's portfolio. Is that is that a fair way of looking at it for some people? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to, to talk about crypto in, in the concept of insurance. Like you think insurance is defensive as you know, protecting. Uh, there, there is that theory that uh, crypto is, um, I, I guess, a defensive play in the portfolio as a, a, against money printing. Um, you know, the stats that I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of, you know, 30% of all US dollars have been printed in the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and, and your Bitcoin as, a, as the store of value, the digital gold has a finite supply. Um, I, th- I think you know, crypto, what I've learned is, is it's, it's the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think crypto mm. is many things to many different people. And um, I, personally, the insurance thing doesn't resonate as strongly with me. I think definitely the debasing sort, sort, sort of does. But I think you've also got the you know, decentralized finance, which, which I hope we talk about, and, uh, and the activity and the new applications, which are you know, more growth uh, orientated. And, and you know, there's potentially a lot of upside in, in those assets as well. So I'm keen to explore the Bitcoin initially and, and what it is. But before we get into that, after talking about your performance from Feb 18 to 19, I'd be reticent not to mention the performance since because following your progress, um, even just the month-to-month performance is just, it's quite mind-blowing. So maybe give the viewers a, a, a feel for um, you know, what your performance has been over the last 12 to 18 months and, and what's, what some of your biggest months performances have been in that, you know, that, that bull run. Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, I think since inception, um, despite that sixty percent drawdown, we're now up about four hundred percent. So those early early uh, holders have, have been rewarded, and, and we're ever grateful for their support. Uh, one year number is, I think, it's about eight hundred percent, and uh, you know, two year number is is sort of similar. Um, largest month we had is sixty two percent, which was in August last year. These numbers are all net of fees and, and, yeah. and everything else. Um, but equally, uh, yeah, so this performance lately has, has obviously been exceptional and, and, you know, very happy investors. Um, but the other interesting stat is the, the worst month, the worst month we had, which was in March 2018, was minus 34%. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, certainly performance has, has, has been uh, incredible lately and, and long may it continue. And so getting on to Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin to you? We sort of started to touch on it then, but is it a store of value? Is it a currency? Um, is it a religion? I mean, I'm assuming... You're in a crypto fund, so it's not a Ponzi scheme to you. But what what is it when you try and describe it to people? Yeah, there's a, a really interesting uh, graph which shows the narrative of Bitcoin over time. Uh, and uh, initially, in, in the white paper, in Satoshi's white paper, Satoshi being the pseudonymous uh, creator of, of of Bitcoin back in 2018, launched in uh, 20, 2008, launched in 2009. Um, uh, Satoshi described it as a, a electronic peer to peer cash uh, mechanism. Um, so th- that narrative has changed a lot over time. Uh, where it really has settled lately is this concept of, of digital gold, of a, of a store of value. Um, so if we think about the properties of Bitcoin and the properties of gold, they're, they're quite similar. We argue that the properties of the Bitcoin is, is superior. It's, it's more scarce than gold. Uh, it's easier to transport than gold. It's, it's easier to store. It's cheaper to store. Uh, if you know what you're doing, uh, and um, uh, and it's, it's programmable, it's digital. Um, and I do get a lot of people um, come up to me and say, but I can't buy anything with my Bitcoin, and so how, how could it possibly be worth anything? And the common answer there is, well, what can you buy with your gold? 
you can't buy anything with gold. And yet the estimated market cap of gold or, or the value of the gold in the world is about $10 trillion. Uh, Bitcoin by comparison is around about 1.3, 1.4. Um, so for, for me, that store of value is, is a very strong argument. Um, I think the other really strong argument is this apolitical, completely independent currency. And that has a huge amount of potential. And if you think about uh, all the nation states around the world, US dollar, China, Russia, even, even places like Iran, which is probably not the best example, but uh, you know, the, the, the desire for a completely independent currency um, is, is potentially huge uh, because there are a lot of countries out there that don't want the US dollar to continue to be the reserve currency of the world. Uh, and the US dollar, you know, the US benefits enormously out of that. Um, so I think there's, there's those two elements. The, the really interesting discussion is this peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash uh, and, and uh, medium of exchange. And there's one, um, uh, we've got a number of resources on our website, uh, at apollocap.io. And uh, there's this one speaker who's an Argentinian, his name is Wences Cesares. Uh, and he's fascinating to listen to. And I highly recommend whether through our website or, or anyone else that people listen to him. Have you heard of him, Chris? I haven't, no. So he, he's an Argentinian. He grew up in the hyperinflation years. And he tells these fascinating stories of how his mother was a public servant, got paid, and uh, would, would receive her pay. They'd go to the supermarket. He and his uh, siblings would run down the aisles and buy what she said. And if they came back to the end of the aisle uh, and they had money, she'd send them down again and buy more things because the money would be worthless the day later. So incredible things that in Australia we just don't have any perception of and, and, and you know, we're, we're very lucky. Um, but he, in this um, uh, YouTube uh, presentation that I mentioned, he, he talks about the three roles of money. And one is the store of value. So if we think about 3,000 years ago, you've, you've come into some sort of wealth. <laughs> uh, you know, your meat would decay, but if you, had, if you had gold, which was the de facto currency, it would store and your value would be stored. The second is a medium of exchange. So being able to buy and sell things uh, with your gold or with your currency. And the third is a unit of account. And so unit of account is uh, pricing your coffee. Your, your coffee is $4.20 or it's 0 0.00013 Bitcoin. And so I think Bitcoin uh, has done really well with the store of value and will it become the medium of exchange and will it become a unit of account? I, I, I don't think it will be. Um, my colleagues at Apollo disagree. Uh, and I think it is a really interesting discussion. And, and I don't think it will be because uh, I think the, the use case to the end user is, is really good. I mean, particularly in Australia, I mean, we just tap everywhere. Cash is mostly digital anywhere. You know, I don't take out a lot of cash these days. I'm sure most people will like that. Uh, and then the unit of account is, is really dependent on it being a, a, on a medium of exchange. But the crucial point there is it doesn't matter. I mean, gold has got this market cap of $10 trillion. Uh, Bitcoin's 1.3. Uh, and if it's a medium of exchange or if you can buy and sell things with your Bitcoin, it, it doesn't matter. It still can be uh, accrue an enormous amount of value and there's still an enormous amount of value yet to accrue uh, possibly. And so if you're trying to value Bitcoin, is that $10 trillion, the, the market that's up for grabs? Could you see it eating half of that, most of that? Or do you even think, you know, government bonds as a, as a store of value potentially in play as the asset classes, you know, that Bitcoin are, are trying to eat, if you like? I think, I think it's a low-hanging fruit. Yeah, so I think there's, on those numbers I mentioned before, there's a 7x opportunity. Um, and, and I think that you could easily see that, you know, getting to gold. I think uh, if we talk about the properties of Bitcoin, the properties of gold, you know, our, our thesis is that Bitcoin is superior to gold. And so there is you know, potential beyond that. Uh, I've seen reports from other funds talk about, you know, $100 trillion, you know, sort of price targets and, and, and these sorts of things. And 
I, I, it's hard to forecast that uh, with any certainty. I mean, JP Morgan have put out, I think, you know, $600,000 a coin and there's, there's $500,000 coin and those sorts of things. I mean, if, if you're 7x up or if you're, you're more from, from starting from a lower position, I, don't, I think you're pretty happy either way as an investor. Um, but yeah, I, I think that apolitical currency has an enormous amount of value, which it, it's very hard to, to put a, a, a number on that. And talk to me about some of the layer two solutions that have been built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain and what they could mean for it going forward. Yeah, so so layer two. Um, so what that means is is just to sort of um, bring it back to a little bit of basics for listeners. So so layer one is the the Bitcoin blockchain, and then uh, layer two a uh, sort of development on top of that. Um, possibly a better example is is, is Ethereum, which is uh, sorry if I'm jumping the gun here, Chris. That's fine. Um, so Ethereum is a is the layer one blockchain, and, and there's a whole heap of it's a smart contracting protocol. And it's very easy to develop on top of Ethereum, and so there's a number of more applications in layer two and. Uh, and, and even above that. Um, and so that's just sort of how the, the, the jargon works. Um, layer two with Bitcoin is really um, mostly around the um, scalability of, of, of the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, I haven't come across that many sort of applications on top of Bitcoin, um, which you know, parallel Ethereum, for example. Um, but one of the problems with Bitcoin is, is the scalability. Um, and that's really to address that medium of exchange use case or, or higher transactions um, so when you say scalability, it's, it's the ability of people to transact at a speed that's quicker so enough transactions can go through the blockchain. That's exactly right. And also, so, and also do it more cheaply. Um, yeah. Because what happens is that there's a certain, uh, basically transactions are supposed to be aggregated every 10 minutes. Uh, and uh, you can actually nominate the price that you want to set for your Bitcoin transaction. And if the price is higher, the lower price transactions uh, you know, sort of get squeezed out. Um, so, so yeah, so there's a, there's a soft fork, um, coming up, uh, later this year called Taproot, which is, uh, designed to, uh, actually on the Bitcoin blockchain level on the layer one, not the layer two, uh, which is designed to increase the scalability and also privacy of the Bitcoin blockchain. So I think if that use case for, uh, using Bitcoin to buy and sell things, I think if that does, uh, happen and eventuate, then I think, uh, you know, that will, um, only add more value to, 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 yeah, to the network. And what are the, the other, some of the other digital assets that are they're really exciting you? Yeah, so, so our focus at Apollo is uh, on this concept of DeFi, which is uh, decentralized finance. Um, so we've, we've had a couple of iterations. I mean, the fund, uh, and we've been going for about three and a half years now, uh, and crypto markets move really quickly. So our investment thesis initially has actually changed, not necessarily the way we invest in terms of you know, the, the, the holding pattern of assets and so on and so forth, but in terms of what we focus on in the portfolio uh, and really the focus on um, at the moment is decentralized finance. And what that is, is the idea that we have uh, programmable uh, assets, blockchains that can mimic some of the uh, traditional financial instruments, uh, projects, um, applications in, that we see in, in traditional finance. Um, and so examples of that, um, uh, synthetics is a great example that I like. Um, so that's uh, an Australian project uh, based, uh, started by some, some guys in Australia. And synthetics allows the trading of synthetic assets. So there's a synthetic Tesla, there's a synthetic gold, there's actually synthetic Bitcoin as well, and there's a synthetic S&P 500. Uh, and what it does is allow people around the world with the benefits of uh, blockchain technology and, and crypto assets to, to trade these synthetic instruments uh, basically 24 seven in a decentralized way there's no, no one coming in saying you can trade, you can't trade, uh, but on a global scale. 
And so I touched on before that in Australia, that may or may not be such a big deal because you know, we have pretty good infrastructure, but for you know, however many billion people that don't have the same infrastructure that we have, that's a pretty big deal. And so they can, with the power of an internet and a smartphone, log on and buy a synthetic Tesla, uh, which you know, is designed to you know, mimic the, the share price of, of Tesla. So it would mimic the share price of Tesla, but it's not actually backed by a Tesla share. Synthetics don't go and then actually purchase a share in the real world, do they? That's exactly right. So it's, it's effectively a, a derivative um, of, the, of the underlying. And you can trade that 24 hours a day? You, you, you can, yeah. There's some, some limitations around it, but yes, you can trade it and, uh, yeah, and they'll roll out other assets so that there'll be Apple stock and all sorts of other um, uh, you know, sort of different instruments to trade. And so that's a, a great example of you know, decentralized finance, uh, the benefits of that, replicating what we already have in the traditional financial space, but with the, the added benefits. Uh, another example is um, decentralized exchanges. Uh, so we have, you know, we have centralized stock exchanges, centralized derivative exchanges, centralized crypto exchanges. Um, so Coinbase was a centralized crypto exchange, wasn't it? Exactly. It, it is. It's a great business. It's a $50 billion market cap um, yeah. and probably one of the most successful stories of, of, of crypto. Uh, and uh, what, but the way that a centralized exchange works is that you need to you know, ask for permission. With the power of you know, decentralized crypto assets, uh, you've got the ability to trade on these decentralized exchanges, buy different assets, uh, and all you need to do, the user experience is much better. All you do is just plug in your wallet and you can buy and sell different assets. And it's all run by software. There's no middle person. There's no middle government, man, woman, child. It's all software. It's all code. And that's pretty incredible. It comes with different risks. The risks that you know, there's problems with the software, um, but uh, it also comes with benefits that you, you remove these sort of intermediaries and, and middle people. And do you think that's why Coinbase went public? Because they think that these decentralized exchanges like Uniswap or a SushiSwap will eventually end up disrupting them? That's a good question. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, probably not. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I think you know, Coinbase has been around since 2012, 2013. Uh, they've done a lot of rounds of investing and it's probably time for them to, you know, a $50 billion valuation um, to maybe sort of reward some of those early investors. Uh, 50, 50 is 50, we always say at Christian Invest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm not sure, not sure. Uh, maybe, it's an interesting theory. Do you... Um... You mentioned how, you know, something like a synthetics where it may not be as relevant in the Western world because, you know, people can generally buy or sell shares. But I mean, we, we have even seen examples, recent examples with the Reddit experience where all of a sudden people on a centralized exchange all of a sudden couldn't sell their stock or their options. So it already is relevant everywhere in the world, isn't it? Not just in far flung places with, with different levels of, of capitalism. Yeah, you're exactly right. No, that's a, that's a great point. And the other example I like to highlight is Cyprus, 2013. Cyprus just took money out of their, <laughs> out of their bank accounts. Um, and uh, yeah, that, can, that can't happen with Bitcoin. It can't happen with crypto. You, you, own your, you own the assets. There's no middle person governing the assets. You own them, they're yours, and only you uh, can control them. And we've got the same rules in our banking system. Like, I'm not going to get too much of the tinfoil out type of set up on, but the government will guarantee up to $500,000 in bank accounts, I believe. But over that, it's sort of a, you're opted into the bank's liquidity if there is a, a complete and utter mess. That's my limited understanding of how the Australian banking system works. But the idea that this could never happen in Australia, the rules would say otherwise. 
Yeah, I'm not particularly a fan of the rules, but I I think that makes sense with my understanding. I mean, the other example, and this is slightly different, but is real estate. I mean, governments have the ability to compulsorily acquire real estate. They do it all the time. They tend not to do it through through Turak and Brighton, but they, uh, you know, they they have that ability. And so, uh, look, again, I'm not a particularly political person. I'm not certainly not an anarchist. Uh, and I think governments are generally for the good of people, um, but there is certainly a power in owning and controlling your assets and, and you're the only one in control. And in terms of cycles, because the, the crypto cycles are, are pretty incredible and you know, you're much more qualified to speak on this than me, but post-halving cycle in Bitcoin, when, when the halving cycles occurred, there's been a huge bull run into December the following year, which would be coming up this December. Um, generally, the other assets that are more toilety, if you like, outperform Bitcoin on the way up. And then post that correction, which the last two cycles has been 60 or 70%, all the other coins lose up to 90% or more of their value compared to Bitcoin. That, that, would you say that's fair that that's probably the consensus view as what will happen in this bull run? Not necessarily that it will, but is that consensus? Uh, I think there's a strong line of thought to that extent. Um, I think there's a couple of different factors because crypto markets are always changing. Yeah. One of the new factors, which, which uh, you know, is not mine, I heard it recently on another um, discussion I was on, is uh, the institutional involvement in, in crypto assets. And so uh, you, you have a number of institutions. Actually, let me go back a step. So crypto assets are probably the first asset ever that have started with the people, started at a retail level. Every other asset starts at institutions and works their way down. Crypto assets started with people and the institutions are actually coming in last, which is pretty incredible when you, when you think about it. So we know that there are a lot of institutions, we're having discussions with them uh, that are looking at investing in crypto assets now. And maybe they might just do Bitcoin, maybe they do my, uh, a broader portfolio, you know, time, time will tell. Um, but I also do know a few, um, some that you've actually interviewed before, that are looking to invest, but they're waiting for a pullback because the returns that we've had recently, you know, 800% over one year, you know, that's, that's incredibly strong numbers and, and you know, unlikely to, to happen the same numbers in, in another year's time. Um, and so, so we do know that there's a bit of dry powder on the, on, the, uh, on the sides and possibly if there is this pullback, it won't be as severe uh, in, in the past. I think what you're alluding to, Chris, is, is um, a pretty well-known model called the stock to flow model, um, which uh, tracks the stock and the flow of commodities and different assets, uh, Bitcoin being one of them, uh, and predicts this sort of this lovely, beautiful model, which Bitcoin has largely it's followed. It's been spot on, hasn't it, so it far? Has. Like... It has, it has. But, but models are made to be broken, right? Like, yeah. It has to break at some stage, in my humble opinion. Um, and so I don't think that will necessarily have the exact replication of the, the cycles we've had before. Um, you know, I, I'd be delighted if it was correct because it does have some pretty astronomical predictions of the decreasing flow of Bitcoin relative to available stock uh, and it's a scarce asset and therefore you know, with demand, the price will increase. Um, but I, I, I guess my sort of CFA <laughs> uh, you know, model I had on me thinks that models are made to be broken and um, uh, and I don't think it'll follow that perfectly in the future. So if we accept that, I guess, I'm guessing you'd accept there will be a bear market again in crypto whenever, whenever that does occur. Would it make sense or will you get the urge to try and be short some of the more toilety coins, given that the relative outperformance of Bitcoin and probably Ethereum in a bear market 
will probably be quite significant or will you stick to knitting and say we'll stay as a as a long only fund and i know you're doing some stuff around yield to mitigate that risk as well um, but how are you going to view the next bear cycle because the bull cycle you know you just buy everything don't you and the the riskier the, the better yes. but how, how, are you, how are you thinking internally about how you're going to manage the bear cycle when it inevitably comes yeah, so spot on. So I'll just touch on the structure of the fund, which will help, I think, explain that a bit. So we're a multi-strategy fund. We've actually got two funds, but the flagship fund, which, which you're talking about, is the Apollo Capital Fund, multi-strategy. Uh, it's got three buckets. First bucket is actively managed core positions, your Bitcoin, Ethereum. Second bucket is your new projects, so VC-style analysis. Um, and your third bucket is, is opportunistic trading, which really hinges on the idea that uh, you know, crypto markets are retail-driven, inefficient, and there's opportunities for sophisticated investors like us. Can you be um, short in that third bucket? Yeah, so we have we can, and we have. Okay. Um, we, we've done it with varying degrees of success. Uh, there are plenty of assets, even in the top ten, that we think are pretty much worthless, uh, and we would happily have a perpetual short on them. But the problem is the cost. Uh, the other problem is is just the, the volatility. We we have shorted before. We've done it again. Some some hits, some misses. Um, to answer your question about how will we handle a bear cycle, and I do agree with you that I think. Uh, you know, there, there is another one at some stage. It's, it's highly likely. Uh, I'd suggest that um, you know, we're, we're not going to go net short, for example. Our, our job is to come back to that uh, discussion of our investors have 1% to 2% of their portfolios in, a, in, in the polycapa fund or, or crypto, and we want to provide that long exposure, um, and then they can manage that if they, you know, if they think that the market's looking topish. Um, but we will try and do some things. And so one is increase to our second fund, which is more yield focused. So very defensive, other end of the risk spectrum. Uh, and and uh, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully cushion some of the fall. Uh, but again, I think investors do need to be prepared for, for volatility. And you mentioned yield there. I mean, the yield on, you can get on stable coins in the crypto world is sort of 10%. And we're not just talking about Tether, which I know is in the news a lot, but stable coins that are completely backed by US dollars. Um, do you think there's more hidden risks in that yield than investors realise? Um, and is that sort of 10% yield sustainable going forward in, in your view? Yeah, so, so the, this good segue to the, to the second fund we, we manage, which is the Apollo Capital Opportunities Fund, um, which really is focused on, on yield farming and, and generating yield from uh, you know, crypto assets. I won't go into the specifics of that. If listeners want to Google yield farming, I encourage them to do so. Um, we actually generate uh, around about 2 to 3% per month uh, on that fund um, at a fees. Uh, and the APY, the annual percentage yield, has certainly come down uh, from hundreds of percents about you know, 12 months when we first started doing it. Started fair, but it was high 80, 80%. Um, and that's not just on stable coins, but that's on a, a few other assets as well. Uh, at the moment, it's, it's sort of stabilised at about 40%, um, which are you know, incredible yields. I think, so two questions, is, uh, are the yields sustainable? Um, I think yes and no. I think they, uh, in 10 years time, no. I think a 40% return for what we see is a very, very low risk uh, is, yeah, it has to be competed away through pure economic forces. Um, having said that, crypto, the, the actual implementation of the strategy is, is quite difficult because crypto assets are operationally complex. So there aren't a lot of people doing it and it is hard to get capital into the space. Mm. Uh, so I think that will persist. It's just a matter of for how long. Our view is let's just get them while we can. Uh, and then if they do stabilise at you know, 20%, 25% or even lower, you compare that to traditional markets and it's still a very, very healthy return. 
Second question is, are there hidden risks? Um, I think it depends if you know what you're doing, <laughs> as is often the case. Uh, I, I think um, you know, there are certainly hidden risks. I think there is the uh, temptation to go to sort of newer projects uh, and newer yield generating avenues, which have higher risk. Uh, and so they can end up uh, poorly, but we as a fund, we're pretty, pretty selective and pretty, I guess, disciplined. We're sticking to the, the well-known protocols that have less risk, have been operating for two to three years and have a huge amount of volume traded through them. So that, you know, if something were to have gone wrong, it's likely that it would have happened already. And I'll, I'll let you go in a, in a minute. Uh, last sort of thought I wanted to get your, your view on is this idea that in 1929, we know that the Dow Jones crashed 90%, but it didn't crash against 90% against the currency that was being debased. It crashed against 90% against what was effectively gold. And we've seen, you know, arguably the biggest economic crisis of our lifetimes occur now and asset prices have gone up. Could you see a world in 20 years time where we look back at this period at a time when asset prices were in, in fact crashing just as drastically as they were in, in 1929, but they were crashing against Bitcoin like they were crashing against gold in 1929? Or do you think I need to stop reading, <laughs> reading crazy conspiracy stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's... As, as you can probably tell, like I'm, I'm quite balanced in my sort of thoughts on crypto and, and yeah, broad portfolio. Um, the, 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 the people that I went to the meetup in in 2015 probably would, would all agree with you, <laughs> I'm yeah. sure. Um, I, I, I think maybe, maybe not. I don't think it really matters. I think if, if that does happen... Then... Well, not for you it doesn't because you've got so much Bitcoin. It matters for people that, <laughs> that aren't well, going to be led into the Citadel. It matters for them. <laughs> I, 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 I think... It, I don't think it matters for the for the thesis of investing in, in crypto and, and Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, that, that's sort of where I was going. I, I do I do get your point there. Um, so, so yeah, I think if yeah the 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 thesis for having a small exposure to Bitcoin and, and crypto is is as strong as ever. Uh, and if that happens, uh, then that the bullishness or the yeah, potential upside is is even greater than um, yeah than, than the sort of low hanging fruit that I talked about earlier. Well, anytime I speak to a, a serious Bitcoiner, I want to make sure that they remember me when they're in the Citadel and they're having all the best parties and they've got all the best food and, and I'm knocking on the door saying that I'm friends with the DJ. Um, don't forget you, mate. So, mate, it's brilliant chatting to you. I've loved it. Um, I could have kept you for another hour, but I know you've got plenty of things to do. So thanks very much for, uh, for giving us some of your time. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Pleasure to, uh, to, uh, to chat with you. This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health with AIA Vitality, health insurance that protects and rewards. To find out more, visit aiahealth.com.au. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.